that. Thank you, Lisa. All right, so I wanted to share with you a little bit about what it's like for a Muslim woman. This is actually Ramadan, and tonight is actually in the Muslim world for one-fourth of the world's population. It's called the Night of Power. And this is a night where they believe that their prayers and everything that they will do will count a thousand times more. So this is a night where a lot is happening among Muslims. And I want to share with you what some of their mindset and their thinking is. But if I was actually a good Muslim woman, before I would go out for the day, I would actually put on something like this. And the reason is, is there's a belief system that um, there is an evil eye out there. And this evil eye is always searching for anything wrong or bad that I would do. And that could be that I would be dressed inappropriately or, or draw attention to myself in a wrong way. And for a good Muslim woman, there's the belief that there's that angel on your left shoulder. And that angel is going to write down anything bad and wrong that you do on that left shoulder. And then on the right shoulder is anything good that you do. And that could be your prayers. That could be your fasting during Ramadan, going to Mecca, saying certain creeds, giving alms to the poor. And these are all of the point systems of how you could do it. But I would be worried before I would go out and need to cover up that I would be getting those good points. It's even extreme. Which foot I go into the bathroom with is actually counted. And if I step into the bathroom with the wrong foot, whoops, bad point. But even as I would prepare to go out, you know, as many, many, you know, us, us ladies, we like our hair. But they would need to cover up their hair to make sure that not even one single piece of hair is showing. They'd need to... They don't want to draw any attention to themselves. And in a very elaborate way, I'm going to do this really simply, they'll take a lot of pins and a lot of clips and do this. And you can actually tell where people are from by even the way that they wear these scarves. But they'll want to make sure that every single little piece of hair is covered on top of their head. And even their neck, make sure the skin is covered and not showing. Then, as a woman, there's even certain times of the month where they would be seen as unclean. And so they would put on these gloves, so that by mistake, if they were to go out and touch someone, that they wouldn't make them unclean by, where, by even putting change in the, in the shopkeeper's hand or something. They would need to put on these gloves so that they don't make other people unclean. And then the most conservative will even cover their face because they want to be unknown and they want to be hidden. They don't want their idea of God to, and that evil eye to be looking for them. They want to be hidden and completely unknown. They just want to walk around so we go to a place in the world, and we say, God, how does your gospel make an impact? And what does it say in First John chapter 3? It says, how great is the Father's love for us, that he would call us children of God, that we would be his children. What does Luke 12 say to us? It says that he loves us so much that what? He knows how many hairs we have on our head. This is pretty radical for these women in this context to hear this kind of stuff. And then we get to Hebrews, and what does Hebrews tell us? It tells us that it was his sacrifice, and he is the one that's cleaned us, and it's through Jesus and his blood that's made us clean. And it says that that was for once and for all, that that blood sacrifice was for once and for all. They don't need to every year continue to make their sacrifices. They don't need to during this night of power. It's that one night of God's mercy tonight for the Muslims. That's what they believe. It's one night of God's mercy. They will stay up all night praying for God's mercy to fall on them tonight, June 10th, in the whole Muslim world. That's happening tonight. But Jesus has done that. And then what does Isaiah foretell? He says he wants to clothe us in his righteousness, right? Isaiah 61, his righteousness. It's not our own. It's not those good deeds and bad deeds. 
It's his righteousness that he wants to clothe us in. So, you know, hiding is not unusual. It started at the very beginning. What happened with Adam and Eve? They hid, right? And in my culture, where I'm going back to next month, that's hiding. But I think about what does hiding look like here? Hiding is in our nature. We want to hide. We want to be busy. We want to, you know, our dress might look different, but we hide in other ways. And we say, God, in this place where you have us, what are the ways your gospel needs to come and hidden to, to penetrate those hidden places? Thank you. You have to contextualize the gospel so that when you go and you find where, however people are hidden, you have a way to, to address that. And I loved how she did it, was, and it was from the gospel. She just didn't say, hey, that's goofy or that's wrong. or You know, she answered it by reading the word of God to them and helping them understand who Jesus is. And I think we can all pray tonight with great power to the one who does hear and to help them understand, to pray that God would help them understand that this is his power and his blood shed for every person. So thank you, Lisa. Uh, we're going to be reading this afternoon or this morning, and maybe it is this afternoon, uh, this morning from uh, the first four verses of Corinthians chapter 16. This week and next week are our last two sermons. We've been in this book since uh, September. And we're going to look at the first four verses of Corinthians chapter 16 and then also Matthew chapter 6. So if you're using a pew Bible, 1 Corinthians 16 is on page 962 and Matthew chapter 6 on 811. So let's stand together as we read God's word. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19 through 21, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, And where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth or rust destroys. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. illustration 
before, but it's so perfect, such a perfect fit for our topic today. I'm going to recycle it. How many parents have had this experience? You take your child to the grocery store, which right there is a mistake. And at the checkout line, you find yourself standing at the candy buffet. And the candy buffet is strategically at the height of your five-year-old. So he or she is staring at the candy buffet. And, of course, you know what they're going to say or ask. Hey, Mom or Dad, can I have a... And your answer is, uh, no, no. However, occasionally, you actually want some candy. And so you decide, well, if I just direct my child to the candy that I like, then I can get a piece of what he gets or she gets. So you feel like Skittles today or M&Ms or whatever it is that you like. And this rare day, you approve the purchase of the candy You actually purchase the candy, and then finally you hand the candy to them. And as you exit the store carting all the other groceries that you have bought for your beloved child and his survival, you kindly turn to them and say, hey, can I have a red Skittles? And your child says what? No, this is mine. Now, this is a painful moment for a parent. I mean, think about it. You have approved the purchase of the candy. You have purchased the candy. You have handed the candy to them. Your desire is just for one red Skittles, one green M&M. And your beloved child that you now know you made a mistake at the hospital choosing says, no, these things are mine. And it's so painful because you're asking them to give out of your generosity. You're asking them to give out of your generosity. And I would say these opening verses in chapter 16, Paul's doing something very similar. He's moving to this issue about a collection that we'll talk about in a moment. But he's doing it in a strategic way, as we'll see. But he's asking the members of the church at Corinth to give out of the generosity God has already supplied to them. He assumes, after coming out of chapter 15 about the resurrect death and resurrection of Jesus, and all the generosity God has displayed... That naturally, as he goes in to talk about them being generous, that they're going to easily be generous people. So let's just, let me just show you what I mean. Chapter 15 is arguably the most important chapter in 1 Corinthians. Maybe a close second would be chapter 13. And chapter 15 is all about the immeasurable generosity of God. Because, it's, again, it's a chapter about his death and his resurrection and how his resurrection is a, a promise. It's a payment. It's a receipt for our own resurrection. So I just want to pick out some of these highlights. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel which you received, the gospel which you stand, and I love this phrase, the gospel by which you are right now being saved. 
If you're a Christian, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, right now, right now, you're in the process of being saved. I mean, that is good news. And it's all coming out of the generosity of God. Look at verse 3. Paul delivers this information. Christ died for our sins. Praise the Lord. He was buried. And on the third day, he appeared. He rose from the grave and he appeared to, the, to Peter and to the twelve. And then in chapter 15, verse 20, you see this. Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the, he's the first fruit that comes out on the tree that tells you a lot more fruit is going to come out. And he's the one who's burst forth from the grave. And Paul is telling you because he's birthed, birthed forth from the grave, you too one day, even though, even at a young age, you've fallen asleep one day. One day you're going to be burst forth from the grave. And the reason we know is because Jesus did it himself. It is incredible generosity. It's immeasurable generosity. Verse 26, Jesus actually destroys death itself. Verse 53, then the perishable body the mortal body will put on the imperishable and the immortal body. And then notice your, 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 your Bible has probably what looks like a chorus because it's part of a song. Paul can't just state this. He's got to sing about it. It's so incredible. He bursts into song. Death is actually swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your sing? Oh death, where where oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? After 58 verses of the immeasurable generosity of God, which culminates in a song, Paul then pivots to chapter 16 verse 1 and says, "Now concerning your generosity, He's got all this incredible momentum about all the things that God has done for us. God has approved a purchase. God has made the purchase himself. God has given the gift of his purchase to us. And now we have the promise that we're going to follow after this first fruit. And now Paul is going to say, hey, now that you understand, now that you have all this momentum about God's generosity, I would like for you to be generous. Now, if you move from chapter 15 about the, the death and resurrection and the promise of your resurrection to chapter 16 about your giving, and it feels a little bit like, uh I mean, you just ruined a good topic there, Paul. You, you went from all this glory to like a rain on a parade. Now you, you just shifted on me to me and my checkbook. 
If Paul's pivot from Jesus' work to your wallet feels like ants invading a picnic, then you're like the child. You don't get it. If we move out of this incredible chapter and we move to your generosity and you feel like, no, this is mine, you don't get it. And so my first piece of advice, if that's how you feel, is for you just to read and reread 1 Corinthians 15. And go back and read and reread John chapter 18 and 19. And, and let that information seep down and pry open your heart and pry open your hands. Because this shouldn't feel like a U-turn. This should feel like an on-ramp. I mean, because of all this generosity, because I'm a follower of Jesus, Lord, how would you want me to be generous? Not like, oh, no, I don't want him to reach into my bag of candy. That's the most important point of my sermon this morning. So if you only had the capacity to get one point, then you got it. And that's where I got the title, From Generosity to Generosity. But that's not the main point of actually our text, verses 1 through 4. 15 is just the momentum that carries us into 16. And 16, what we see is Paul has a strategy for giving. And I don't think, it's an, I don't think the strategy is important as the condition of our heart. So that's why I wanted to address that piece first. But really in these four verses, I'm going to point out three different things about Paul's strategy for giving. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about. First of all, Paul's strategy for giving in these four verses includes relief and unity. So what do I mean by that? If we read Paul's other letters, maybe specifically Romans and 2 Corinthians, what we know is that the Jerusalem church, the church, the Jewish church back in Jerusalem was a very poor church. And so as Paul traveled around into these Gentile churches, he decided he would take up a collection. Now, some of these churches were poor themselves, and they gave, they gave out of their poverty like Macedonia. But some of these churches like Corinth, they lived in a very... A financially wealthy city, and they would have had some means in order to give. And so he's hoping that these Gentile churches would collect a, a big pile of money and then send it back to the Jerusalem church to help relieve the financial burden. So that's one, one part of his strategy is to actually offer relief. But, but that wasn't Paul's only strategy for the giving. And this is where I think Paul is just so shrewd, so smart. He knows, he's well aware that there's a very thin and fragile bond between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. There's a lot of suspicion between those two churches. 
There's a lot of cultural differences between the two churches. There's, a, there's an ethnic difference between the two churches. There's an economic difference between the two churches. And there's a lot of suspicion between these two churches. So Paul decides, hey, if I give money, my hope is that this generosity being demonstrated by the Gentile church would reduce suspicion and build a stronger bond of unity. To, to basically say to the Gentile church, for the Gentile church, to the Jewish church, we're on your team. Or for the Jewish church to feel like they think about us, they care about us. So it's not just for relief. He understands, I'm trying to get this one church to beat like one heartbeat. I want them to feel like they're all on the same team, even though they have some differences. Now, when we look back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus makes it very clear that there's a connection between the, your wealth and your heart. Very famous verse, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So Paul picks up on that strategy, and he's hoping that this treasure given to the Gentile church, to the Jewish church, would begin to bring their hearts together. So often when you're together financially, your hearts come together because you have the same dreams, you have the same passions. You ask any couple, any married couple, they come into my office and they have financial problems, I guarantee you they have heart problems. They're not on the same page. They don't have the same dreams. There's all kinds of suspicion or questions about finances, and that leads to suspicion and questions about the condition of somebody's heart. And so Paul understands that, so he's giving this gift for relief, and also he's doing it very strategically. He wants to build this bridge between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. Now, because of my relationships with a group of African-American pastors here in Wilmington, our church has had several times relieved financial burdens in these churches. We brought book bags. We've helped from our benevolence funds to help families in some of these churches. And one reason we've done it is to bring relief. But that's not the only reason. There is a very thin and fragile unity between the predominantly white and predominantly African-American church, especially in Wilmington. And so we do it to say we're trying to build unity. We're trying to help each other say we're on the same team. We're in the same city. We're preaching the gospel. We're trying to have one heartbeat for the city. And I want you to know, because you all never see it, when I go to some of these churches and preach there, or I'm just a guest, every single time the pastor stands up and said, hey, there's Paul Phillips. He's the pastor of Christ Community Church. They gave to... That's the very first thing they say. And that begins to win that congregation over to say, yes, our churches are the same. We're trying to do the same thing. And so that's exactly what Paul's trying to do. Very strategic. He's trying to offer relief and he's trying to build unity at the same time. Second part of his strategy is that Paul knows that giving is a matter of the heart and habit. Your giving is a matter of heart and habit. There's a great quote by a guy named John Ortberg 
in his book called Soul Keeping. Soul Keeping. If you don't have, if you haven't read that book, just put that on your summer list. And here's his quote: "Habits eat willpower for breakfast. Habits eat willpower for breakfast." Our only hope for change is not for more willpower, but for a new set of habits. Now, this is very insightful. You all know this. So what the Apostle Paul understands is he knows all this momentum coming out of chapter 15, all this enthusiasm coming out of chapter 15 about Jesus' generosity can quickly come to an end and a crashing in on the shores of your bad habits. You could actually go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 and John chapter 18 and 19, and you could say, I'm so stoked, I'm so energized, but I'm not a giver. (laughs) And your habits will overrule many times the condition of your heart. And Paul understands that. Paul understands habits eat willpower for breakfast. And so he tells us what we should do. Verse 2, every week, everyone is to put something aside. Every week, everyone is supposed to put something aside. Every week, everyone is supposed to put something aside. You know what that is? That's a repetition. Just like an exercise. When you're trying to build a muscle... If you do one rep a year, not a good muscle, right? Every week, everyone. Do you see what he's doing? We've got to build this generosity muscle. If you're not in a habit of giving and you make $100,000, tomorrow you're not going to be able to write a check for $10,000. Now, you might be financially able to do it, but you won't have the muscle to do it. You'll have a lot of fear. You'll have a lot of concern. You'll have a lot of what what ifs, and you just don't have that muscle. And so Paul's saying, hey, let's just start building the muscle. And if you're not used to this, then let's just start small, do something that you think you can do, and just do one rep after another, and just put in your reps of giving, and you'll be amazed And how God can bless you and you can bless people in ways that you never thought was possible because you never really exercised that giving muscle. And so that's what he's trying to help us see is that he knows it's a matter of habits. And yes, you can have all this energy and momentum, but if you don't have the habit, you've got to do something every week. And you've got to do it. You've got to do it repeatedly over and over now. Every week or two weeks or month, God takes his money and puts it in your hands. I hope you realize that. You don't earn it. God gives it. And this is just the way he's done supply. If you're a bird, he makes it rain and worms come out of the ground. Right? That's how he does it. And the way he does it here in our economy is you go out and work, and then he supplies some amount. And you might get $1,000 a week or $10,000 a week or $100 a week. 
But he is taking his resources, he is putting it into your hands, and then he's going to say, can I have a red Skittles? And if you take your paycheck and say, it's mine, you're like the little child. You don't yet get it. Now, I'm not trying to scold you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you have the right perspective of how God's doing this distribution of money. Now, notice everybody's not going to give the same thing. He says, according to your prosperity or according to your income. So everybody's going to try to shoot for 10%, and we won't talk about the tithing issue right now, but that's generally the mark that you and I should be shooting for. But if you're at 1%, then I would just say, let's try two. Because you're not going to go from 1 to 10 tomorrow. But just start building that money. Everybody, every week, puts something aside. And when you get your habits and your heart together, man, it's a joy to give. It is a joy to give. And that's what I would hope you would experience. Your first habit might not be all that fun. You might have a lot of fear. You might have a lot of anxiety. Who knows? But after a while, when your habits and your hearts get rolling together, you'll just really experience incredible joy. One final, quick, third, but important point. Verse 3. And when I arrive, Paul's saying, okay, I want you to, I want you to know I'm coming. I want you to put something aside every week. I don't want to have to notice that, that uh, I don't want any collecting when I come. You hear that? I don't want to be the, the Apostle Paul and, and I kind of strong arm people. And I, I want people to give regularly. And then verse 3, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you, Corinthians, you accredit. You approve. And I'll send a letter with them to carry your gift back to Jerusalem. So I just want us to notice this. Paul's not coming to get the money himself. Instead, he's telling the church to, to choose some people you accredit or you approve. In the Greek, the word is tested. People who've been tested with money. People who have great integrity. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to put all that money in some people, a group of people's hands. And those people that you choose with integrity, I'm going to add my letter to it saying, hey, this is what this money is meant to do. That's the plan. Again, so smart by Paul. Why? A large sum of money given to one person on a long trip? Not a good plan. Even somebody who's got great integrity. You get dis displaced. Every business person knows this who goes on long trips. You feel like nobody knows you. Nobody's watching. Who's going to know? And so he says, I, I need several people of integrity to go together and deliver this gift back to Jerusalem. 2018 budget for Christ Community Church is $900,000. And that's a large sum of money. And we know that can have a corrupting or a corrosive effect. Even on one person of strong integrity. 
So I want you to know that we have multiple people of integrity examining how the money is accounted for, how the money is spent. Louisa Belk, our financial director, Ned Marable, our treasurer, Mark the Cosmaker, our executive pastor. I think there are five people on the deacon finance uh, board that all take a look at our, our budget. All of the deacons and the elders look at it once a month. We do this not because we don't trust any one person. We just know, understand the power, the corrosive power of one person having all the access to the money. So we take Paul's strategy of integrity seriously. Let me close with these two comments. First of all, on behalf of all the staff, I want to thank you for your generosity. Not, not just what you might give in the offering plate, but really your hearts, your lives, your homes, your, your gifts. Uh, we had, I had recently talked to somebody to analyze where we are financially thinking about this capital campaign coming up. And he said, Paul, I just want you to know you have a very unusual church. I don't see churches your size with this kind of generosity. So you should appreciate that. And I just want you to know we, we appreciate it. Thank you. Secondly, as most of you heard, or at least many of you did at our congregational meeting, We've decided to embark on a capital campaign that is going to begin in the fall, but really the pledge time is going to be next February or March in 2019. And our goal is $1.2 million. And we hope that that one first million dollars, we plan that first million dollars to pay off our current debt on the building, so it will be debt-free. And then the next 200000 would be for certain projects that we need to see happen on the land or in the building, we think, in the next five years. Well, we're all going to get on this weight bar together. <laughs> and we're all not going to lift the same amount. But everybody, every week, is going to have to give. And so I think just by God's providence, what perfect timing to say, if you have a tiny little giving muscle, then you have the next six or seven months to exercise that giving muscle, to just get in your mind what God has done for us, to get in your mind that God's giving you everything that has value, and then begin to listen to him and say, God, what do you want me to to give back. You tell me it's your I'm just the, the I'm just the resource person. You tell me how much I should give back to the church and and specifically for this project. Let's pray together. Lord, we come here today and so many different things ha- have happened just in this one service. A prayer for a family that most of us don't know and the heartache of a six-year-old boy passing away and being in your presence now. Songs of joy, of reflection. Thinking about one quarter of the world's population thinking that there are angels on their shoulders making tallies of their lifestyle, hiding themselves. 
considering the great generosity of chapter 15 and being challenged to be generous ourselves. So, or this is a too much to contain, but I pray that you would take whatever piece that you brought your people here today specifically to hear, that they would have an open heart to hear that, to act on that, to pray about that, to change so that we might be more in your likeness and live more for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.